welcome guys and gals to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Mr. Michael Hebb. And Michael is an innovative and influential cultural figure, entrepreneur, and activist described by the New York Times as an underground restaurateur, impresario, and provocateur. There's a lot of big fancy words, but basically uh, he believes that the dinner table is one of the most effective and overlooked vehicles for changing the world. Uh, since 1997, he has been staging invite-only salons and dinners all over the world where guests from multiple disciplines and various backgrounds focus on specific themes or ideas. These gatherings, as he terms them, uh, have taken place on five continents and have been exhibited in several museums, attracting coverage by the New York Times, W, Art Forum, The New Yorker, GQ, and many, many more. Now, Michael and I talk about a few different things because his dinners are about death and how we can approach death and learn from death itself. But first, Michael and I talk about parenting, and he shares his personal journey in raising two daughters and how one of his daughters has transformed his life. And he talks about raising the women of the future. And so we go deep into a man's experience on raising daughters in the modern world. And then we shift quite dramatically into talking about how uh, conversations at the dinner table in community style events can radically change uh, our communities, radically change our lives and bring us closer together. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Michael Hebb. Uh, pleasure to be here. I always find it interesting. I usually am connected with people once or twice and then all of a sudden they, they land on my show and um, I've heard about your work and just the different things that you've actually created over the years for for quite some time now. So I'm excited to get into this today. So let's uh, let's start with the with the question that I ask all my guests, regardless of their field, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. The first story that comes to mind is actually, um, I think, you know, right at a, a period in our lives where men are supposed to or boys are supposed to start the leap from um from boy to man right around 13 14 15 years old where i think you know traditionally we would have a rite of passage um where we would um, head out into the woods by ourselves um on a walkabout or some sort of vision quest or go through some sort of ritual where we would have to leave the child part of ourselves behind and step into manhood. And, you know, I think culture's done a really good job um, throughout time of intelligently designing these type of rituals. And now we have a um, a real lack of, of those type of rituals. And when I was 13, I was very much, you know, with, with the crowd, um, really enjoyed um, my popularity as a 13-year-old, um, enjoyed um, kind of being very uh, very much in the center of mainstream culture of um, you know of what was it like um, middle school or you know eighth grade um, feeling quite feeling quite good about how things were going for for myself it it just so happens that my father was also quite ill um, and he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's um, when I was in second grade and 
so his his diagnosis and he was put into a nursing home um and you might wonder about the age differential um and he was actually 72 when i was born um so my father was born in 1904 during the yukon gold rush um and then when he was seven in his early 80s he was diagnosed with alzheimer's um and our family had i'd say somewhat normalized around the fact that, um, you know, my father was sick and not present. Um, I would, I wouldn't say in a healthy way, but it had become somewhat normalized. And, um, on the day of the morning of Halloween, um, I woke up at three forty-three AM. Um, I, I know that time because I looked at my clock when I, when I woke up and didn't know why I was awake. There wasn't any noise in the house and I, you know, went, walked down to the bathroom and tried to get, take a, you know, um, take a leak. I couldn't pee. And I was like, why am I up? And, um, scanned the house again, nothing was happening and went back to sleep. And then I woke up in the morning. I, I knew that my father had died. Just, um, there was this deep knowing and I walked down the hallway to my brother's room and my mom and my brother were holding each other and crying. Um, and it turns out from the coroner's report, um, that my dad's heart actually stopped at 3.43 a.m. was the time that was indicated. Um, and so, and I didn't know that at the time. Um, that was a later reveal, but it was Halloween and I was 13. And so I did what most 13-year-olds do on Halloween. Um, you know, uh, had, there was all the parties at school and then we're going out that night for sure. And we're going to, you know, get in some kind of costume and essentially raise hell. Like if you're um, a popular kid at 13, a boy, you're like, you're going to, um, you're probably going to drink a little, you're going to do some damage um, to somebody else's house, um, teepee, et cetera. And I went all in um, and the whole day, um, I, I didn't feel comfortable telling anybody um, that my father had died. And I find it, you know, fascinating that just looking at myself personally, but at a culture where um, there wasn't space and there wasn't a person, um, I didn't feel like anyone could actually take the weight of that information. And so I just held on to it. Um, but something happened in during that day and that evening out where I had a kind of rift with my, um, you know, with my peers, um, not no, no altercation, nothing dramatic, but I felt a, just a little bit removed from them. I had this thing that had happened to myself, you know, to me that I didn't know how to, re, you know, most people wouldn't know how to relate to. And I didn't know how to relate it to them. And it started this little schism between me and, you know, first the popular kids. And then most of, um, most of the kids that were most of my peers, the same age. Um, and I felt like I was observing my, uh, you know, community and friends and, how middle school and then, uh, you know, high school, how we were all interacting with each other. And that, I think that that, um, that little divide, that little skip in the record was actually an incredibly defining moment for me because instead of looking for a connection, um, with my peers, which is where I found, um, you know, joy, um, engagement, um, excitement, um, all of these things, um, commiseration, I no longer had the comfort of finding it among my peers and had to look elsewhere. And so I started to look um, toward, um, you know, 
books, intellectualism, spirituality. Um, and it started this, um, what has been since that point, this um, desire to really understand um, profound, authentic human connection. And it led me into transcendental meditation at a young age. It led me into being very interested in um, where culture is, how culture is created, like the different nodes of human connection and communities that have actually shifted um, the shape of the world, um, whether that's Hemingway and Picasso um, and Gertrude Stein in Paris or Andy Warhol in the factory um, or the Bloomsbury group with um, that it kind of jo- formed around um, Keynes, the economist, and um, Virginia Woolf um, or the Lunar Men. Like I really wanted to understand how people come together and shape the future by sharing ideas and sharing human connection. And so I'd say that this this moment, this loss, um, which was so devastating and confusing, actually opened up this whole other world to me. So for a long time, you know, I was a pretty weird, like, 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old. Um, with a, it had a, had a hard time relating to even adults a lot of the time. It's a pretty formative experience. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with us because I – you know, I can't, can't imagine being a teenage boy and having that happen. Um, I'm curious from, from a, you know, just from an external perspective, like was, you know, growing up in that environment with, with a father that was, you know, so much older than you, what, what was that like? You know, cause it was almost like being raised by your grandfather and, and then, you know, having that loss, I would imagine, um, as you said, it was very, very sort of, um, created a rift so what was it like growing up with a father that was that much older you would think it would be more a little bit more like being raised by a grandfather my father until he got sick um had incredible vitality um and the other thing about him was he was from a much different generation um than all of my other um friends parents um and and my mother too my mother was 29 years younger and she was born during the great depression in um you know in mormon utah um, and my father, um, you know, was raised in uh, Tacoma when it was kind of like this um, hotspot on the before Seattle became the center um, of the Pacific Northwest. Um, and and you know he went to Exeter and he um, was on the first um, uh, college year at sea, you know, and then was at um, UW, UW and like had this incredible early childhood and and was really part of this great generation where that conceived of civic duty in a completely different way had more it's almost more that like theodore roosevelt you know john muir mentality of of engagement around you know what what can we do we're here for a reason what's our what's our purpose what's our destiny how can we have a powerful positive impact on the world i think that it's funny like i get along very well with um, millennials that have this um, activist um, gene, um, this kind of civic engagement gene, um, but Gen X and you know Gen Y like doesn't really Gen X certainly doesn't really have it as much. So I think that I had this um, early um, role model of a different kind of man um, than a lot of my um, my you know my friends had. And the other thing that happened when you know, when he got sick, I had to, my mom pretty much lost her shit and reverted into a, a very minimal 
parental role. And, um, and so I had to learn how to raise myself um, in many ways. And I had a brother, a bigger brother that wasn't much help and was pretty antagonistic. Um, and so, you know, there was this kind of survival modality that, you know, mentality that I found myself um, having to really embrace. Um, but then also my dad wasn't there to disprove of me. I think so many of my friends, male friends, have to, in a very edible way, have to figure out how to kill their father. They have to figure out how to get out from under the shadow or the boot or the, um, you know, the consciousness or the um, ideas of what success looks like that have been imparted upon them um, by their father. And that's not all men, but a lot of men um, that I, I know in their 30s and 40s have to do a lot of work to shake that ghost. Um, and for me, um, it wasn't there, you know, there was, I had to learn how to receive love and, um, you know, and give love in a much more, um, powerful way later in life because that wasn't modeled in my family. Interesting. I mean, that's such a, it's such an interesting lens to view the world through, you know, that, that older generation that you're talking about, that sort of like Teddy Roosevelt, uh, viewpoint of you're here to do something, you have a purpose and you should do with it something positive, have a positive impact. Where, where do you think that, like, do you think that that's still very prominent amongst men? Because, you know, we sort of live in this very polarizing time right now, especially when it comes to masculinity. I think, you know, we've, we've sort of seen, you know, the Me Too movement happen. We've, we see, you know, companies sort of taking on, uh, like Gillette taking on the, the responsibility or, you know, attempting to take on the responsibility of, of sort of teaching men or sort of expressing their viewpoint of, of what a man could be or, or how to be a better man. Um, and I, I'm curious how you've, how, from your perspective, you know, what the current state of men is and, and do you see a resurgence in younger men to sort of pick up that call to arms of having a purpose that has a positive impact in the world? Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of things to unpack there and that question, obviously. I mean, what is this? You know, it's funny, it's today that we're recording this is also the day that Trump is giving his, you know, his State of the Union. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like, what is the state of masculinity? Um, and I'm sure this is where you you spend a lot of your time thinking about, you know, talking to people about on this podcast. Um, you know, I was really, when, um, I was about 32, I met the, um, founders of summit series. I know that our communities have a lot of overlap, you know, met Jeff Rosenthal and LA biz now and, um, Brett and Jeremy and Ryan and, um, these guys that have now gone on to, they were in their 20, they were in their early twenties, 22, 23, and they just um, landed uh, Bill Clinton um, as a keynote for their event in um, in Washington D.C. in 2010, and I was like, "Who the hell are these kids?" Right? Like they've just landed Ted Turner and Bill Clinton for an 800 person event in uh, D.C. You know, and then they've, have, as many people know, the story summit has then gone on to buy um, Powder Mountain in Utah, which is now I think the largest. Um, ski resort in North America, and they're developing it with like 500 home sites. Um, so, but I met them. I was was blown away by not only them, but the community of people surrounding them. Um, you know, in that point, it was Blake who started Tom's Shoes, and Scott who started Charity Water, and 
Tim Ferriss and Adam Braun and, um, and, you know, then Lauren Bush and, um, you know, like all of these remarkable young social venture focused entrepreneurs that were really had gotten this, um, this gene, um, this like latent idea that I think went asleep for a couple generations seemed to pop back up that there is a, you know, a way of being in the world where you wake up and say, how do I have a positive impact on the world or that's less refer self-referential, right? Not just how do I create security for my family, but how do I challenge and disrupt and transparency has a, um, you know, is a value. I don't know everything that's going on behind those walls and not just take, you know, information as it's given to me. And, you know, and I saw this incredible spirit, which I don't know if it defines the whole millennial generation, but for me, um, I finally felt, um, at home, I, you know, with, uh, Jeff Rosenthal is like, uh, you know, I don't know if we coined the term, but for me, it was certainly coined in my life through meeting him as, as a reverse mentor, like being mentored by a younger person. You know, so that's happening. That spirit is very much alive in um, the millennial generation, but um, it also happens to be the generation that is the most navel gazing, that grew up as digital natives, um, where you know every you know every little bit about themselves needs to be shared in order to um, feel like they exist or something. You know, those are the uh, the standard uh, lens that we put upon this this generation, as far as it being navel gazing and. So for me, there's, it, it's a funny, uh, uh, contrast and, um, you know, s seeming paradox that these two things exist at the same time. And I don't think they actually exist very well or gracefully at the same time. And so I don't, it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out as this, as the millennial generation becomes, um, you know, the, the, the generation in power, not just of. Um, you know, the leading companies, et cetera, but really of policy. So, you know, I think that that there's that layer that's happening. And then the other, um, the reckoning around me too, for me is um, incredibly exciting because it's um, the lifting of the veil of something that's been there for such a long time. And it's very much like that rite of passage and that stepping into adulthood. I think that men are being asked um, quite clearly by women to stop being children, um, to put aside childish actions, um, to not um, be cruel, um, and to take responsibility for their actions. And that's a very hard, it's very hard to tell a grown person that they need to let um, a part of themselves die or they need to take responsibility for their actions because we're already operating in many ways like autonomous human beings who are operating like adults. Um, and then to be told that we need to once again, you know, look at the way that we're behaving. And even if we haven't, if we don't have a terrible rap sheet of doing awful things to women, and we need to be better allies and we need to be better listeners. Um, and all of that is being said without a lot of guidance towards what it might look like to do the work as men to be able to get to that place where we could take responsibility. So for me, you know, and we can delve into my work around death and dying, but it's very much about a certain part of um, the current modern man being asked to die, um, both in the, these behaviors where one in six or maybe even one in four or maybe even one in two or 
potentially all women in some way have been have had some kind of um, sexual violence committed against them and you know that that's a that's hard medicine to take that's a hard reality to look at but it's so essential um if we want to reduce suffering yeah and i think that you know that last piece the reducing suffering is really really a cornerstone i think of what a lot of guys are really feeling right now in in the world is like okay we're asked we're being asked to evolve in some capacity i think the challenge is is that a lot of men don't necessarily either they don't want to listen to the call or they don't see that there's a problem right because there there, there also seems to be this like uh, this sort of game that's being played that I've noticed between men and women now of like whose suffering is worse. I call it I call it the suffering hierarchy. There seems to be like a lot of uh, a lot of like jockeying for position on the suffering hierarchy and like who has it worse. And um, and I see a lot of men sort of revoking uh, or just or just like rejecting, you know, just completely rejecting this the uh, this this movement in some way and. And I think a part of it from, from what I've seen, and I think we should definitely get into the, the death and, and, you know, the, which parts of, which parts of us are actually being called to, uh, to die and, and be let go of. But I, I think a part of it is that a lot of these men are also hurt. You know, they're, they are the hurting boys or they are the boys that, that are then going on to hurt women and, and they haven't been led properly. They haven't been taught properly and so they're they're just passing on in, in some way whether it's conscious or unconscious they're just sort of passing on what they know and what's been passed down to them and you know a big part of of the work is um a big part of the work that that i talk about with a lot of men that that come and do work with me either one-on-one or in men's weekends is about learning to father yourself and mm-hmm. and learning how to actually caretake for the child that's within us because without that there there seems to be this like wholehearted <clears throat> rejection that that child even exists even though he's sort of behind the curtain you know scared shitless pulling the strings <laughs> and so yeah I, that's that's sort of a a, a long roundabout way of 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 saying you know here are some of the problems that that i've sort of seen you know be a challenge with a lot of men but where do you see where do you see men trip up when it comes to me too because this is a charged topic and and one of the things that i've seen is that guys are sort of getting to a space of of being tired of of being told what to do so how do you how do you see us being able to combat that and outside of that what challenges do you see with men and the me too movement yeah, I mean, I think it is really kind of less about, for me, it's less about Me Too, and it's more about um, a way of being in the world that has people take full responsibility for their actions. And how do you do that? How do you do the scary work of going into yourself, like you're saying, and seeing where you're hurt and seeing that you're actually creating um, the world around you. You're creating the hardship and the pain and the struggles you've had at work and getting outside of a victim consciousness. Um, You know, the irony, the not even irony, but the tragedy of a lot of men who struggle with Me Too is that they, you know, they struggle with women, quote unquote, being victims and should stand up for themselves or should not have put themselves in this situation or should not put me in this situation now. 
and that in and of itself is is a is a victim mentality um and so you know how do we get um how do we get into that because we all play the victim sometimes we all play the martyr um there's there's great efficacy in um certain situations that you know it can be very impactful to play that card um you can get what you want um in certain situations you can get pity you can get sympathy you can use it as power over people and so i would say it's it's more about how does this generation of men or this era of men get over this victim consciousness um obviously also how do we get over um you know committing cruel acts um and when cruel acts are committed standing up to other men and, and being allies for other women that's kind of baseline and you know a, a big part of this and I love that you talk about men fathering themselves and i you know i've got two daughters um and one is 10 and one is 18 and um one of my um my older daughter really struggled um in her um teenage years there was a lot of depression and anxiety and some substances and there was a lot that she went through and she was really kind of shopping um for um you know how to um heal this you know trauma she had in childhood um and we ended up doing a, about 2 years of deep therapy work together and i had to go really into i had to get away from blaming you know her mom or blaming circumstance and just take responsibility for my role in her unhappiness um and you know how i'd abandon her as a um young girl and i'm not talking about abandoning her like i moved five states over um i was there as a consistent um uh, presence um but i was but in many ways i abandoned her um emotionally part of it was i didn't want to stand up to her mom and um you know certain um ways of being in the household um and you know i had to sit through or got to sit through and see um the pain and the impact that my uh behavior had had on this young beautiful brilliant human being that's trying to understand how to be in the world and her models um are not models that she wants to follow she doesn't want to be out of integrity um in the way that both of her parents were she wants Uh, us to be fully accountable for our actions and i had to go back through and say even if certain of the factual things that you're talking about aren't true the emotional sense of abandonment is and that's not okay and so i had to rebuild trust from the ground up with my daughter and i really likened it a lot to it was almost like i had to create a um an adult womb for her like like a you know a man trying to create a womb for a um a teenager which is a really difficult thing and she ended up much like when a child's in a womb she ended up relying on me for regulating a lot of her emotions you know while she was going through a hard time she was looking to me to see you know if i was going to be reactive if i was going to be judgmental and i had to go through and really look at like the whole microfacial you know reactions on my in my own person how was i responding to everything that she was saying um how could i actually become neutral or positive how can i be weigh every word that i'm saying to her and really and whenever i tell her i'm going to do something be there for her and actually make it true and then go above and beyond and that process 
one healed my daughter. Um, you know, her mother did a lot of work too. And, 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 and my daughter did this incredible amount of work. And now she's living in England and finishing up high school in this incredible school, happier than she's ever been. But that process of stopping everything, taking a real spiritual level of responsibility for my daughter's suffering and building trust from the ground up, this remarkable thing happened for me personally, which was I no longer had um, any of the quote unquote imposter syndrome. Um, it was gone. And, you know, for men that aren't familiar with that particular coinage or women who are listening, um, the imposter syndrome is essentially that feeling that you don't necessarily deserve all of the good things that are happening to you or in life, or maybe people are giving you things or opportunities for ulterior reasons, or at some point someone might come by and just take all of the good stuff in your life away. And then through claiming like this deep level of relationship and responsibility to my daughter and showing up for her and healing that relationship, I was like, oh no, I deserve the good shit. Uh, like no one's going to, no one can actually take anything away from me because one, I ended up liking myself and loving myself in the process. Cause I was like, yeah, I love that man that actually stopped everything and focused on his daughter. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a powerful experience. And I, I think, you know, not, not only a worthy cause, but I can imagine one that was probably very confronting at first. You know, you, you talk about the journey of having to, at a sort of a soul level, be able to take accountability and, and really look at your own integrity in that space. What was, what was confronting for you as a man, as a father, when you embarked on that journey with your daughter to support her through the challenges that she was going through? Because I would imagine, you know, there's a lot of parents that tune into this podcast that have kids uh, uh, or, you know, were kids at one point and, and want to understand their own parents better. What was that journey like for you as, as a man and a father? Well, a, a couple of things. Um, first, I've, I've, what I've learned about teenagers is that um, instead of them being awful and temperamental and insane um, and all of the ways that we cast them aside, we essentially assassinate the character of teenagers um, as a culture. Um, they, you know, they're unreliable. They're, the hormones have made them insane. We've got books upon the chemistry of the teenage brain to, to back this up. And for me, um, what I actually have come to see teenagers as, um, is, you know, um, young adults or children on the brink of adulthood, looking at, um, their gene line, looking at their parents or the, you know, the people that, um, are, they're supposed to emulate and reflecting back where they feel you're out of, un, out of integrity. Um, and they do it. Some children are, you know, some young teenagers are very articulate and know exactly what they're doing and are able to communicate this. And some, I think, are just doing it on an animal level. Um, and the reality is they're looking at their future selves um, and not necessarily liking what they're seeing um, because there's not that many parents that are, you know, um, raising teenage children that aren't out of integrity somewhere. Um, now the question is, are you going to let your teenager become your spiritual teacher? Um, or are you going to make them wrong um, when they tell you th something you don't want to hear? Um, and they, again, you may have to have, you know, you've got to turn your translator, um, you know, ear up to a very high level. If you're 
you know, luckily I have a very articulate child. So she could tell me very distinctly what she felt like was wrong and how her genes that she shares with me were expressing themselves in me and how she didn't want to replicate that. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing like, nothing like having a very articulate child to, or partner for that matter to tell you exactly how and where you're wrong. (laughs) Yeah. And and to see it as a gift, right? If you can get over the egoic response to that and just be like, wait, what is somebody offering me right now? I mean, this is also, I've started in general just to turn my boat, my human boat towards conflict um, because not because I'm a conflict junkie. I'm actually deeply conflict averse. And so I have to make it a, um, a practice of saying, okay, where is the pebble in the shoe? Where is the chafe? Where is the friction in, in any of the relationships in my life? Um, and then turn towards it and say, okay, here's an opportunity. Why are we struggling right now? What, what can we get through? Um, and you know, that, that doing that with my daughter definitely gave me like on the ground combat experience. Um, cause you're so emotionally, you know, they can cause so much cortisol, um, to be released, um, in so many stress hormones to be released into your system, but you can as well. The thing is when you look at your children with any kind of scorn, um, roll your eyes at them, shake your head at them. Um, you, you, they're literally, your face is the map of their internal world. And so I had to look and say like, what is my face doing? What is my do- my face telling my daughter about herself? Right. And then to be like, wow, I need to really control it. And I learned this from the Gottmans actually, um, incredible relationship researchers that mostly focus on um, how to make or break um, uh, married relationships. Um, but I went and did a weekend with them. Um, and instead of, uh, I didn't do, a, you know, the person I was with at the time, we didn't have a lot of the classic relationship issues that the Gottmans were talking about. But I was like, oh, I do all those things with my daughters. Like I ended up going to like a love and relationship couples retreat and like having it revolutionize how I parent my daughters and just be like, oh, I've got to control what I tell them about themselves without even knowing I'm doing it. But some of the other things were just sometimes you have to hear things from your children um, that you think are untrue um, or think are a unjust way of characterizing your behavior and really look for the emotional truth. Um, like what is it, if, if they're telling me this, um, it's not just to prove me wrong, it's because there's some hurt there. And if, you're, if your job is to, um, you know, understand and keep safe um, and provide an, a safe environment for your child to grow, where they feel unsafe and where they feel hurt, um, you want to be looking for it. Um, and, and you want to put aside whether you feel like you're right or wrong. Um, and I saw, you know, August had many facts and, and details wrong and I had to deal with the, the, the larger, um, emotional reality, not the, not the factual. Interesting. Yeah. I, I love that perspective, man. And I think, um, you know, just just the self reflection of of the awareness of how you're interacting with the kids, and you know they they literally are just little bundles of pattern recognition machines, and they can see us in in ways that we often can't see ourselves, and then they they replicate that back in some way, or you know they get hurt because of it, and they try and communicate it, and maybe that doesn't always go so well because <laughs> maybe they don't have the tools or the know how to to def, you know to let that land, and sometimes we're closed off to that. So, 
you know, for all the listeners that are out there that, you know, are probably that are probably wondering the same thing that I am is how, how did you start to rectify that process with her? And, and if there was a sort of, um, not a guide, but, but some of the things that you found to be incredibly helpful in raising your daughter, in repairing the relationship to your daughter, in, you know, making sure that you are setting her up for success in this world to be a, you know, a strong, woman in in the world um what what would you have to say to that yeah i mean it's really like in any relationship um your your ego is definitely not your friend mm. uh, you know the, the ego is important um in i think protecting ourselves um and and it is a protective mechanism and i have no like i've got no problem with um the notion of, of a healthy ego, a healthy sense of self-esteem, um, you know, having confidence in your ideas, having confidence that you want to put your ideas out into the world, um, taking rejection in stride. Like, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, I don't even think that, you know, people say we have to kill off your ego. It's like, well, maybe at a certain time, but you know, then you're just going to be living like, if you have no ego, you just like, you really open up to the cosmos for a full spiritual experience. Like that's uh then you're looking at a kind of saintly experience. However, while the ego is very good um, at protecting us, it is not an effective way. It's not an effective tool or mechanism for connection. And so, you know, while it is, good around identifying our authentic voice. It isn't so good around generating um, authentic attachment. So it's a, there's a paradox there. Um, so I would say that in many as many ways as possible to really check in with who's talking when you're, when you're dealing with it, your child. What internal voice is getting upset? Is it your hurt child? Um, do you really feel like your child's unsafe in what they're thinking or believing? You know, so it, I, I think this is this is just about self knowledge, and any any pathway to self knowledge that we can take, I think, is beneficial. Um, and that's why you know I'm a big fan of um, landmark or plant medicine and ceremony work and um, and and therapy. All of these things are routes back to ourself and you know and not and not some um, heightened egoic um, sense of ourselves we can get down to that authentic person that wants to connect with others and make that the priority mm. um, there's a lot there's a lot of communication that can come from there nice and and what about death because i know that that's a big part of you know what what you've done how how has death played into your role as a man and as a father and and or or has it even because one of the things that i find very interesting is you know you've you've done this series that um, you know you've done this this dinner series where you bring people in and and talk about death and you know you've got the book let's talk about death over dinner <laughs> which yeah. is which is such a fascinating concept to me i'm i'm all about that and it sort of harkens back to the to this, I think there was a there was an ancient Christian sect that practiced uh, memento mori, which was this this act of meditating on death. Um, and so, how how has that impact and sort of shaped um, your life and, and maybe your parenting? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it goes back a bit to you know the, my thirteen year old self and 
all of a sudden being pushed um, by experience out of the mainstream onto a kind of fringe, right? And then it really kind of under, started to understand the edges of culture and how the edges of culture actually lead us um, forward. It's, what, it's, it's where evolution happens. Um, evolution, innovation, um, cultural advancement, breakthroughs, they don't happen in the, in the center or the, you know, just off center. They happen out on the fringes, on the edges. Um, and that's, that model is fractal. Like, so it's, um, it's true for culture. It's also true for the self. The most interesting thing is to go out to your edge and cross it. Um, that's what we would call vulnerability finding what you're afraid of, what you're afraid of saying, what you're afraid of experiencing, the emotion that you're hiding from, the person inside that you're hiding from, and, and, and going into your fears. It's also the, it's very much the hero's journey. And, you know, we've characterized the hero's journey, um, whether via Joseph Campbell or how it um, is uh, animated in Star Wars. We've characterize um, this hero's journey as this very masculine going out into the world, um, fighting a dragon. You know, and this is this classic mythic structure that um, is in so many stories and is really an archetype, um, archetypal thinking in so many of our own heads, right? But yeah, you go out, the, the hero's myth, you go out and you defeat a dragon or something very scary. And in doing so, you get a gift that's very important to um, the rest of society and you bring it back and you're celebrated as a hero and um, everybody's better because of it. And, you know, that could be Beowulf and Grendel or um, Gilgamesh or, um, you know, the Hobbit or, you know, um, Luke Skywalker. And I think the sad part about the way that we characterize this story and the way that we are so literal with things, whether that's in the Christian storytelling or many other traditions, is that we miss the fact that this is actually a story about internal um, getting to know yourself, getting over your own edge, going and facing your fears. And when you do so, you gain a great deal of vitality. Um, you have a great shift in your consciousness. And that is the gift that you can bring back to the people in your life. And it doesn't have to be throngs of people. It can be the five people closest to you. And the beauty of that kind of work, that emotional work, is it can actually be done on the deathbed. Um, it can be done in the last five minutes of your life. It can be done in the last hour. It can be done in the last week, year. It can be done right now. And your life gets immensely better um, if you're crossing your own edges. And so if we move back, and, and it's actually, it, it's clinically proven. This isn't just me telling some stories about some other old stories. Um, it's been clinically proven that repression causes disease. Um, it's also proven that if you talk about death, you talk about the things that you're afraid of, you live longer. Um, you're also funnier and you have a greater capacity to love. Um, uh, Dr. Jordana Jacobs has been doing some incredible work on showing that facing death um, improves um, our intimate relationships, like having an acceptance of death. So memento mori actually improves um, or increases our capacity to love. And we've started to work together on a few projects. But nonetheless, back to, you know, what does death have to do with this? Um, where if you accept or can maybe you do or you don't, but understand that um, crossing our personal edges gives us vitality. For me, I've also just been really interested um, in those larger cultural edges. You know, where do we transgress? Where do you break the law? Um, where do you cross the taboos? Because, um, you know, that's the terrain that we need to be, um, uh, you know, exploring in order for us all to evolve. And, and I've had 
dinner conversations on every topic imaginable over the last 20 years um, on pretty much every continent with presidents and Nobel Prize winners and artists you can't like imagine that you would have at the table together. I've been very fortunate. And through that time of using the table as my medium, really as a kind of site of healing and site of human connection, it became very clear that the hardest conversations, the ones that we avoid the most, are the ones that have the most capacity to heal us and transform us. And death is um, kind of the penultimate. And so I, I, at the same time that I was frustrated that I couldn't reach more people with these dinners, they started to get pretty fancy and um, kind of A-list, blah, blah, blah. And I wanted to reach millions with um, what I'd learned at the table and having these profound conversations. And so I created a um, web platform um, with Angel Grant and um, at the University of Washington with a um, team of graduate students called um, Death Over Dinner. And the idea was, let's take on the hardest conversation that actually gives us the most vitality in life when we do face it and has the possibility of completely transforming our healthcare system and solving the financial woes of it and also our personal financial woes, number one cause of personal bankruptcy is end of life care. Um, and you know, it has all of this potential and let's put it in a box and let's distribute it like a board game and hope that more than a hundred people pick it up and play it. And uh, as our last count conservatively, there's been over a million people who've sat down and had um, one of these death dinners. That's really cool. Uh, I love, I love the fact that that many people have engaged in this conversation and I'm curious from your perspective, from from having all these dinners and from having all these conversations, why why is it that that most people, and I'm sure that there's a few different reasons for this, so I'm, I'm hoping that you'll give uh, a few different perspectives on this, but why is it that so many people are afraid of or avoidant of talking about death? Well, there's... Uh, there's a lot of reasons, as you mentioned. There, well, one we have a we have a um, a bias. We have a hidden bias in our in our brains, in our systems, in our neurological makeup. Um, you know, Kahneman um, wrote about this in Thinking Fast and Slow. And you know, one of these one of the biases um, is uh, that we think that we're an exception. Um, so we, you know, this is why we're able to have our heart broken and 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 think that we can fall back in love and we won't have our heart broken. Like it's a very effective bias um, for us to do things that are scary because we think we're, we're an exception. It happens to other people, but it's not going to happen to me. And so um, we don't think about death because um, it hasn't happened to us. Um, you know, we also um, have an empirical bias. We want to, ex we, we know and talk about the things that we've experienced as truth, what we haven't known and experienced death. You know, there's also a, discomfort bias. We don't like bringing up things that make other people uncomfortable. Um, whether we realize it or not, we, we're, we're social tribal creatures. Um, and we, it really can endanger our um, relationship to the tribe, our standing in the tribe to make people uncomfortable all the time. Um, and so, you know, bringing up death, like has this stack of just like, um, neurologically pre-programmed or culturally programmed biases and has us not talk about it. So I have a lot of compassion for people who um, aren't having this conversation on the regular. Um, the other, you know, reason why we don't talk about death in our modern times as much as we used to is that we've hidden it away. We've medicalized death. Um, we don't confront it. We don't confront dead bodies. 
um, even war, the way that we fight wars is um, surgical and removed and, um, and via drones and via long range um, attacks. And so that we've become more and more removed from not only death, but each other and, you know, via technology um, the medicalization, the Western medicalization of death, um, you know, has it happen in hospitals when people don't want to die in hospitals. So the reality is we're just confronting, you know, and confronting death in, in much and much, um, less frequently. And then we've also moved away from, um, some of our wisdom traditions, um, and some of our religions. Um, and there's death, um, uh, there's memento mori, not just in, you know, the, the Gnostic sect of Christianity, the early sects of Christianity, there's um, death awareness um, and death genuflection in every religion. Religions are essentially all about death. Um, and, you know, <laughs> like it's, yeah, I mean, philosophy is all about death. Religion's all about death. Um, and so, you know, but, but we don't um, engage um, with our religious traditions as much as we used to. And so there's been, we've stripped away the, the memento mori, the reminder. Um, and so it takes a really conscious effort. But I mean, everybody's, everybody is having a conversation about the fact that they're going to die in their own head. And I, when people say, my parents won't talk to me, or my spouse won't talk to me, or my, you know, kids, if you're an older person, won't talk to me. Or they don't want to have the conversation. They won't talk about this. And I like to s- tell those people they are talking about it. They're having a conversation in their head maybe don't point a finger at them. Maybe think about what in you needs to shift so that they feel comfortable sharing the conversation that they're already having in their head with you. Um, and that becomes a more interesting game. Yeah. I, I, I like that last perspective uh, a lot because I think it, it not only humanizes it and reminds us all that, you know, the conversations that we have in our head oftentimes are the conversations that the majority of people are having in their head, especially around, larger topics like like death and totally we are snowflakes and we are not yeah yeah exactly exactly it's it's the unification that you might you might be a you know your shape might be different but you're still a snowflake (laughs) although i don't think that the alt-right would you know love that concept um (laughs) um yeah very cool so in terms of like uh, the immediate thing that comes up for me and i think that you've laid out a lot of the uh, you know, a lot of the different pieces around this, but maybe if you can share a, a sort of personal experience or or what you've seen personally grow for you as sort of a benefit of having this conversation, because I would imagine people are like, oh, you know, I got I got all these other things to do. Why would I bother talking about death? And, and I'm, I'm all about, I'm all about the benefits. So maybe share a little bit for us around some of the benefits of having these conversations with strangers that, you know, over the dinner table or people that you know and love. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit like um, the, the, the snake shedding its skin. You know, if we're, um, if we are committed to personally being as open to what life has to offer, um, not run by life, you know, or not run by, uh, what we have learned or um, some other program that somebody has convinced us to run um, in our own brains or life. Like if we want to get down to what's authentic, um, authentically us um, and what we authentically feel about things and who we authentically are, 
there there is no better conversation than talking about you know death and it isn't just like um a morbid conversation it's a conversation about you know uh, with these with death dinners we'll ask a question like um you have 30 days left to live um, you've just found out you have 30 days left to live how do you feel and 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 then how do you spend those 30 days um do you you know just do you run to the seven wonders of the world um, do you stay at home and do precisely what you've always done? Um, do you, you know, do you say you're sorry to certain people? Do you write letters to your children? Um, do you, you know, what, what is it that you spend your time doing? And then what does your last hour and your last day look like? And then what do you, how do you feel right before you die? Now that's a really incredible, um, exercise in, ref- in identifying your priorities because most most likely people aren't asking you that question in your daily life. Um, that's, that's not, um, a prompt that comes up on your phone. Yeah. It's not a normal, it's not a normal, uh, dinner conversation or at the water cooler. Yeah, it's not. And it's actually not morbid at all. Um, it's really powerful. Like people get really inspired. Um, some people realize like, Oh shit, I've got to clean that up or this, or I'm not spending enough time with my kids or I haven't told them I love them. Um, enough lately, or you know, what would happen if I died? Or I don't have my paperwork in order, or I haven't communicated to anybody what happens to my body and how I want people to honor me. So it it has a great it has a great um, rev, you know revealing or revelatory like quality to it. And so you know, to the extent that we're interested in you know being seen and seeing other humans, which is also um, you know scientifically proven to be the greatest indicator of longevity is how deep our connections are to our community. Um, essentially how deep our love is. Um, and so, you know, that is better than exercise. Um, that's better than not smoking. Um, that's better than not eating hamburgers. That's better than being vegan. (laughs) It's better than any of those things, um, for longevity and meaning and and living a meaningful life, um, is how deeply we are connected to our uh, community these conversations, these difficult conversations, it doesn't have to be about death. It can be, let's, let's talk about, um, let's talk about sex. Let's talk about, um, impropriety and sexual and the me too. Let's talk about addiction, how we're all addicted to different things and how we tend to like to stigmatize and blame people that have an addiction to heroin versus an addiction to their iPhone. Um, yes, one of those things has more work, wreaks a little more havoc on culture and selves, but they actually light up the same parts of our brains. Um, you know, delve into these difficult conversations, know ourselves, know each other, live longer. I mean, I think it's, uh, I think there's a pretty good, uh, argument for yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's a pretty great, uh, pretty great benefit. I, I love how you tied it into talking about death and live longer. That was, that was sort of like the, the, the the crux of it, which I think is is great, and, and and it's true. I think anytime that you know, when I run men's weekends, we have these conversations about death, and you know, if if they, you know, if the men were to die, uh, in, you know, thirty days after the weekend, what what would they regret? What would they need to clean up? And and um, what would they regret not having done? And and some of those things can shed an incredible amount of light and perspective on purpose and on priorities, and so. Um, I think there's a, a ton of value in, in what you're saying. And unfortunately, we are wrapping up this episode. And I, you know, I wanted to get into uh, one of the other projects um, that you're working on, which is uh, Women Teach Men. And 
Um, but I think that we'll maybe have to save that uh, that conversation and that, that experience for for another time. But if you were just to to sort of summarize maybe why you created that and yeah. and, and what the sort of essence is, uh, I think that would be great. Yeah, well, um, briefly, um, I, I joined an organization called Round Glass um, about a year and a half ago. And um, our, um, our mission is to work on global well-being, to create a global well-being movement. And so one of the first projects that I brought on, as well as, you know, um, expanding the scope of Death Over Dinner, was to create this project, Women Teach Men, because if we need, if we're going to have a healthy society, we need to look at some of the um, cultural diseases, not just the, um, you know, not just the the diseases of the body, but the diseases of the soul and the mind. And misogyny is one of those in my mind. Um, we will never have a truly healthy culture um, until uh, misogyny goes away. And um, so, you know, in many ways, women teach men as a practice in um, I, what a culture, how to get beyond a misogynistic culture, how to heal it, um, where men will come willingly to learn from brilliant women um, and to hear reflections from them about their experience as women, but just the brilliance that they have to share in general about the world. And it's just one, it's meant to be just one step in a culture that's moving beyond this, um, this patriarchy. And so we have extraordinary teachers like Esther Perel and Gina Rudan and Tracy McMillan and um, all of these men who come willingly to be challenged to learn, to open their hearts and to hear um, from the other in a very safe way, in a very safe se setting. It's not a pointing fingers at men. It's a we're all in this together. Um, let's learn from each other um, space. And the first event in Ojai was extraordinary. And we have another one coming up June 7th. And on Bainbridge Island and Seattle and Islandwood. And it'll be, I think, equally, if not even more remarkable. Wonderful. Wonderful, Michael. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me on the show. And um, I look forward to, to hearing more about the work that you're doing and having these types of conversations. And for all the listeners that are that are out there and that maybe were curious about this, you can go to deathoverdinner.org. You can check out Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner uh, on Amazon uh, or on Michael's site. And we'll have links to all that in the show notes. But Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Can't wait to chat again. Yeah, absolutely. And for everybody else that's out there listening, uh, don't forget to like and subscribe. Share this podcast episode with just one person. It goes a long way into getting it into the ears and on the phones of other people who could use this type of conversation. So until next week, ne next week this is Connor Veeden signing off. Join me for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm -hmm.